Thank you for listening to this sermon from Hope Church, Toronto West. It is our prayer that through these audio sermons, you are challenged and transformed by the Word of God, built up in love and faith, and drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want to remind you that these online resources are never meant to be a substitute for God's good plan for you to be present, connected, and serving in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you live in the West Toronto area and are looking for a local church, we encourage you to come check out one of our Sunday services. Now as you prepare your heart to receive God's word, we pray that His Spirit would use the sermon powerfully in your life. has been realigned and recalibrated. And this psalm reminds us of how to do that. This is where we hear, if you're taking notes, this is the first point, Psalm 146, we begin to hear the call to sing praises to the Lord. We begin to hear God's call to us to sing praises to the Lord. The psalmist is trying to lift up our eyes here and get the, our eyes off the thing that we're so fixated on and back up onto him. And you'll notice he begins, this whole psalm begins by saying, praise the Lord. In Hebrew, that's just the word hallelujah. That's where we get our word hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And this first time that it's used, it's actually used in the plural. It's a call out to the congregation. Let's do this. Praise the Lord. And then you'll notice it's quickly followed by, in verse 1, another praise the Lord, O my soul. He's speaking to his own heart now. He's heard the cry. Everyone here, y'all praise the Lord. That's how you'd say it in the south in plural. And then the person in the congregation says, yes, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And he begins to speak to his own soul to get it, to awaken it, to kind of take it by the shirt and say, praise the Lord, do what you were designed to do. Why do, why do we need to do that? Why do we need to kind of almost speak to our own heart, speak to our own soul at times? That's because life's hard. It's easy to get distracted. It's easy to be... When you go through trials, sorrow can be so overwhelming. And so we need these kinds of reminders where we need to almost take our heart and say, do what you know is true. God is worthy to be praised at all times. He is the most beautiful of all beings. Praise Him, even in this time, even at the time where you think it's least possible to do it. Begin to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, as it says in verse 2, as long as I live, I will sing praises to my God while I have being, despite how I feel. And I just feel like this is just such a good word for us in our own day. We, we live in an age, in a culture, in society where it's very trendy right now, where feelings are seen as what is true. Feelings, whatever you feel most, is what is most true of you. And so if you don't feel like praising the Lord, well then just go with that feeling and just set that aside. But that's not, that's not what this passage is telling us to do. In fact, it's saying that 
we should not do what our culture is saying, that feelings are not merely good, but feelings are God. In our culture today and in our society, there is this idea that we are told that whatever you feel most deeply is what is most true and most true of you. That is your identity, whatever your strongest feeling is. And any hindrance to the expression of that deepest feeling that you have is cruelty and oppression. But the reality of the matter is, is that telling someone to tie their identity to their emotions is what is most oppressive and cruel. It would be like saying to someone to tie their identity to a piece of driftwood in the sea so that they feel every rise and fall of a wave just up and down, up and down. They're just all over the place, all over the map, feeling increasingly disoriented and motion sick and drifting further and further from the shore of truth. And Psalm 146 calls us back to the shore of truth, the truth of God's word. That these, and God's not saying cancel your emotions. No, God's saying, I gave you your emotions. Those are good things, but they are never designed to lead you. They're not meant to lead you. God's word is designed to lead us and shape our emotions, conform our emotions to the truth of God's word. We have feelings. Because God made us with feelings. Because we're made in the image of God. We're to reflect God. And God has emotions. And so our emotions should reflect His emotions. That is, we ought to love what He loves. We ought to hate what He hates. He hates injustice. Our hearts should hate injustice. If I love injustice, there's something wrong. I'm out of sync. I'm misaligned with the truth. And so God is calling us to align our emotions with the truth of his word. Uh, in our van, there's this light that's just perpetually on. Don't ever tell my mechanic this, but uh, I've ignored my engine light for quite some time. But the engine light is a lot like our emotions. Our emotions tell us that there's something going on, but it doesn't exactly tell us what's going on. Just like the engine light, when it pops up and it's flashing on your dashboard, what it's saying is that you need to pop the hood and figure out what's going on. But it doesn't tell you exactly what's going on. It's not designed to. So you've got to reach over to that manual in your glove compartment and pull it out and look up what exactly is going on under the hood. In the same way, our emotions, they, they're like indicators. They're like lights that go off that tell us, hey, there's something going on under the hood, something that I really love. There's got to be a reason why. I, why do I feel this? This joyful emotion. Why do I feel this deep sorrow and grief? There's something going on. Or this frustration and anger. What's going on? I don't know. I've got to pop the hood. And God's word is going to diagnostic, give us a diagnostic printout of what's going on in our heart so that we would be able to rightly interpret the emotion and then begin to bring it in conformity to his truth, the truth of God's word. God has given us his word to help us discern our emotions and bring them back to line up with his word. And that's what this psalm is doing. It's calling us back, saying, praise the Lord. Whatever your situation is, 
He wants to be the lifter of our head and get our eyes back up onto the Lord so that we can find hope again and bring our emotions back into conformity. God is not saying here that everything's going to be rosy and perfect. What he's saying is that he's lifting our eyes up to what is even more true and more beautiful than the sorrow that we may be going through. If we don't lift up our eyes and if we are not led by God's word, we will be carried away by our emotions in whatever trial or pain or sorrow we're going through. And if that happens, we will be very tempted to make a fatal choice to trust in man. And this is what the psalm warns us about. This is our second point, this fatal choice to trust in man. Verse 3 and 4 says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. And on that very day, his plans perish. Uh, The word princes here just means people that are in high positions. And we can easily see why that would be a pretty good idea. If, if we're in a tough spot and we need some help, then we would be tempted to go to people in high positions to help us. You know, sometimes we might think that, you know, if we just elect the right politicians, then all the problems in our society will be fixed and everything will be great. Nothing wrong with politics. I think it's very good and biblical to be involved, both as voters and God is calling. If he's calling you to be a politician, do so with the full blessing and abiding in Jesus Christ as a politician. But we don't look to politics and we don't look to politicians as our saviors if that's going to fix all of our problems. No. In fact, what this psalm is saying is that any time that we make a human being, a son of Adam, our savior, we're going to run into at least two problems. The first is that People are limited. You see that in verse 3? It says, we're sons of man, children of Adam, who came out of the ground. God, God formed Adam out of the ground. He's made of dust. He's got a ceiling. He's got a limited capacity. His, his plate is only so big. And we are his children. We have limited capacities. So even on my best day, I can only hope to help you so far and no further. I hit a wall. But secondly, it says in verse 4 that his breath departs and he returns to the earth. The people aren't just limited, people perish. And so all of my promises that I make here, they have an expiration date. Adam, because he sinned, God told him that he would return to the ground that he was formed out of, and that he would return to the dust. You may have been at a funeral. And you've heard those words, from dust to dust. And many of our our promises have this kind of limited expiration date. One of the most most significant promises I've ever made in my life was on my wedding day to my wife. And among many vows that I made to her, I promised that I would be faithful to her until death do us part. Because after I've died, I can't keep fulfilling that promise. I'm not there to fulfill those promises anymore. And so that's why it's not a good plan to make other human beings your saviors. They 
are not able to carry you through the trials of this life even into the next. We need someone who is able to save us now and forever. Someone who's able to carry us through every trial here and carry us into the new heavens. This is, this is who we need. We need a better solution. And what Psalm 146 is telling us is that God has provided this solution in sending his son. And this is the last point, that he is calling us, God is calling us to this blessed hope of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blessed hope of Jesus our Savior. In verse 5 it says, blessed is he whose help is God, the God of Jacob, and whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, and who keeps faith forever. This word blessed, blessed be God. Blessed, sorry, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. This word means happy. This word means glad. This, this word means joyful. Joyful is he who has made God his hope. Instead of being miserable idolaters, God is inviting us to experience a joy that surpasses understanding. Now, as I said earlier, this doesn't mean that all of your life now is rosy and all your problems just melt away. But what it does mean is that because when we trust in God, we get God, then we get a hope that is higher and deeper, a joy that exceeds any sorrow and grief that we'll experience here. As it says in 1 Peter 1.6, that in this we rejoice, in all that God has given us in salvation, even though now for a little while, if necessary, we have been grieved by various trials. And so our experience as believers is a mixed cup of emotion, of grief and joy. That's normal Christianity in this side of heaven. And what God is saying is that as we go through the trials and as we experience grief or frustration or disappointment underneath, is a deep joy of unshakable truths of what God has done in our life that we just sang about, that He has completely forgiven us of all of our sins, that He has given us a new heart and the Spirit of God who live in our new heart, sealed in there to help us and strengthen us and even pray for us and intercede on our behalf and carry us through to the very end, through all the trials. That's what it's saying, is that there's a deeper joy that is being given, a river in whose streams make glad the city of God and its citizens. So in order to remind us in the trials, to keep trusting in this kind of a Savior, what God has given us in Psalm 146 is really laying out a really quick resume, a CV of the Lord as to why we would be convinced that we should really trust in Him. Imagine God uh, filling out a Savior Wanted ad. Uh, you can just kind of hear him uh, in the interview. Yeah, uh, so I can do a lot of things. Um, I can create things out of nothing, like this planet. Um, I know everything, in fact, of what you're even thinking or of what you're about to do and say. Uh, I'm, I'm really reliable because I can be there for you. In fact, I'm everywhere at all, all times. Like he, he, he just absolutely off the charts, blow every 
uh, schematic that we would have as to trying to figure out what's the best Savior here. If we're just kind of breaking it down pragmatically, God is off the charts on every scale. He is the greatest of all saviors. And so unfortunately, we don't have time to kind of walk through how the Lord showed that all the way through the Old Testament, but we do have time to just quickly look at how, by looking at each of these categories that Psalm 146 gives us, how Jesus actually is the true and greatest ultimate Savior that the Lord gives, because he is the Lord himself. And so why don't we look at that? We'll look at each of these categories and as we looked at in verse 6, the first one is, is that God establishes who he is and what he is able to do. And that Jesus, the Lord, is creator. It says, who made heaven and earth. And not just he made the earth, but then everything in it. So he makes the space and then fills it. And God is the creator of both. He made the sea and all that is in it. Of course, this reminds us of John 1, right? John 1, verse 1 to 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things that were made through Him and were made through Him without Him was not anything made that was made. Everything that was made was made through Jesus Christ. He is the co-creator with His Father, making everything out of nothing. And so if he's going to make a way to save us, then surely that way will be made and he will save us. But it also talks about how at the very end of verse 6, it's he who keeps faith forever. He keeps faith forever. He's the great promise keeper. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. God fulfills all of his promises to his people through Jesus Christ. And if he has promised to save us, surely he will. He cannot break his promises. Next, it talks about in verse 7. This is the God who is able to execute uh, execute justice for the oppressed and who gives food for the hungry. We'll look at the justice one in just a little bit. But the, second, the, the next one is, is that Jesus, he perfectly saves because he's the one who's able to feed the hungry and feed them like no one else. He's the best savior. Even though Jesus fed thousands and thousands of others during his lifetime, he chose to go without food and fast on the cross at the end of his life, so that he can make a way for us to be saved and welcomed into the banquet table of the Father to feast with him forever. We enjoyed a part of that this morning in communion as it looks forward to the banquet that we will enjoy with God forever through Christ. More than that, Jesus himself is the bread of life who has come from heaven so that we might eat of him by faith and in so doing receive eternal life. We were spiritually dead and famished and now we can eat and live and be saved. Jesus also perfectly saves, not just by feeding the hungry, but by setting the prisoners free and setting them free like no one else. Not only did Jesus literally 
let people out of prison like Peter and Paul, but he chose to personally be bound on a cross and imprisoned in a tomb on our behalf so that we might be freed from the slavery of sin and captivity of death and might know both forgiveness and eternal life. Jesus is the one who can set prisoners free like no one else. Jesus is also the one who perfectly saves by giving sight to the blind and giving them sight like no one else. This is God the Son, the all-seeing one who sees everything, who knows everything, but he chose to come as a baby and live in his mother's womb for nine months in which he saw nothing. Almost as if he were blind so that he could be born and live and begin to give sight, not just physically to the blind, but spiritually as well. If you look in throughout all of history, all throughout the Old Testament, no one could open the eyes of the blind. No one could give sight to someone who couldn't see. But here Jesus, all throughout his ministry, is just giving sight to the blind, left, right, and center. Jesus himself says in Luke 7, go and tell John, John the Baptist, who is beginning to wonder, is Jesus really the real deal? Is he the one that we're supposed to trust in as Savior? Go tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Jesus himself, he's just... He's just testifying. These are all the things that I've done. I've opened the eyes of the blind. But the greatest sight that Jesus gave wasn't the eyes in our head, but the eyes of our heart. That he might open the eyes of the spiritually blind so that they might see Jesus for who he truly is and all that he is and trust in him and believe in him for salvation. In John 3, Jesus answered those who were asking him questions. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus must open your eyes. He must give you new eyes in order to even see him, to, to really appreciate all that he is, to even see the kingdom, to even before entering in by faith. We must be born again. And Jesus alone is the one who can give new eyes and new hearts that we might be saved. Not only this, Jesus himself is the one who lifts up the downcast and he lifts them up like no one else. Not only in Matthew 12, 20 does it say that Jesus faithfully cared for the one who was like a bruised reed, whose faith was like a, a smoldering wick. You know, like the smoldering wick, it's just... It looks like it's on and almost off. Like it's just barely, just kind of smoldering on the top. Or a bruised reed. Maybe you've driven by a ditch and you've seen a reed that's been snapped in the wind. It's been bruised. It's been bent. And once it's been bent, it is impossible for that reed to get back up on its own. But Jesus describes himself as the kind of Savior who comes alongside bruised reeds and is able to lift them up. He comes alongside smoldering wicks and fans it into flame. 
This is the kind of Savior that Jesus is. But not only is he able to do that for us now, practically, he's the one who's actually not only able to lift us up here, that we might be encouraged and be renewed in hope, but he's the one who's able to lift us up all the way into resurrected life from the grave. John 11 says, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's Jesus asking you. Do you believe this? Do you believe that he's this kind of a savior that isn't just kind of there to encourage you and lift you up in very difficult times? He is that. But he's the one who's able to lift you up and keep lifting you all the way to heaven. He's the one who's able to raise you up to resurrected life that you might live with him forever. Can any other Savior do that? Jesus alone can do that. At the end of verse 8, it goes on to say how Jesus perfectly saves because he loves the righteous and he loves them with a love that is like no other. Now, he's not saying here that Jesus only likes the righteous, like you've got to clean yourself up first and then he'll start loving you. No, 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 no. Romans 5, verse 8 makes that very clear. It says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus fulfilled God's love for us by dying on the cross and displaying his love when we were unlovable. He made a way for us to be forgiven and then given Christ's righteousness. That is, we now share in his perfect report card of loving and obeying the Father in which he did throughout his whole life. And he's now shared that with us. He took away our, our failed report card that was full of sin and he took that away and gave us his so that now we stand before God right in his sight and loved. But it wasn't, it wasn't because... Now God loves us because he cleaned us all up. He has been loving us with an everlasting love before the foundations of the world. He set his electing love on you to choose you and to love you and to make a way for you then to come into and experience his love relationally through Jesus Christ, the Savior. He is the one who loves the righteous like no one else. He loves us with an everlasting love love. And it gets better than this. As we go into verse 9, it says that Jesus perfectly saves because he protects the sojourner, and he protects the sojourner like no one else. He is the divine immigrant who left heaven to come to earth to sojourn his whole life and never have a place to lay his head, whether in Bethlehem or in Egypt or in Israel he was constantly moving around. He knows like no one else. He, no one knows better what it's like to feel like an immigrant or a sojourner than Jesus. He became a sojourner, though, for us so that we might have a home. He came so that he could make a home for us in heaven, that we would be able to, during our sojourning here, have the hope that one day there would be a home in a city that he is preparing for us as our Savior. 1 Peter 2.11 says that all who trust in Jesus Christ are sojourners and exiles 
on this earth during this short time that we're here, even while at the same time we are, we are citizens in heaven, Philippians 3.20 says, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, during our sojourning, Jesus promises never to leave us nor forsake us, Hebrews 13.5, and to be with us always to the very end of the age, Matthew 28.20. And this is great comfort, not only for us as spiritual sojourners that are awaiting Christ, but even now, physically, immigrants are often susceptible to being taken advantage of in their new country, which is a foreign land to them, and not having the same uh, cultural awareness or sometimes the uh, benefits of citizenship yet. And so there is a sense of vulnerability, a sense of exposure that is often felt. And God not only can comfort them as they hope in Him, but also then send brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God around them to care for them, to protect them, and to help them. We become the hands and feet of Jesus practically. Jesus helps the sojourner now, physically, but also spiritually. And we also do not want to forget how Jesus now, he's finished his sojourning and now he is in heaven at the right hand of God. And he is now preparing a place for us. He is preparing a home and a city in which we will dwell with him forever. When he comes, he comes for us and he brings us to be with him so that we may never have to wander again. Not only that, Jesus says that he is the perfect Savior because he sustains the widow and the orphan. And he's able to sustain them like no one else. Jesus is the one that sometimes we forget he himself was orphaned and that his mom, Mary, was a widow. Sometime when Jesus was a teenager or an adolescent, his dad never shows up again in the stories. The last we hear about his adopted dad, Joseph, was when he was about 12. And so Jesus knows what it's like to be an orphan. He knows what it's like to care for his mom, who was a widow. In fact, at the very end of his life, as Jesus is on the cross, he makes sure that John the Apostle, the beloved disciple of Christ, takes care of his mom. He's a good son. But Jesus cares for his mom. Sorry, I mentioned that. Uh, but greater than that, Jesus makes a way for all widows. Jesus makes a way for all widows to be permanently married and for all orphans to be permanently adopted into the family of God again. You see, Jesus is described in Scripture as the groom from heaven who comes to make a way to save us his bride. And so every widow who's been widowed here in this life is now able to have the hope of putting their faith in Jesus Christ and being wed and married to the groom of heaven forever. In fact, that's true for all of us. Whether you're single or married or widowed or whatever marital status you're in, as you trust in Jesus Christ, you become engaged to him and the deposit of the engagement ring of the Spirit of God in your new heart is given to you until Jesus the groom comes. 
And when he comes, that's when there will be the marriage supper of the Lamb in which our communion points to. It's like this reception that goes on, this, this wonderful marriage supper of the Lamb that goes on and on for eternity where we will constantly be delighting in and feasting with Jesus Christ, our groom. That is our permanent marital status as a believer. We will be married to Christ. And Jesus, the Son of God, makes a way for us who have been orphaned here on earth to be immediately brought into the family of God when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and then welcomed into the very home of God as we talked about for all eternity with a place setting with your name on it in the new heavens and the new earth. He is able to bring every orphan into his family and every widow into his bride, the church. He is a perfect savior. Lastly, we're going to look at Jesus perfectly saves because he brings justice to the oppressed. He brings justice to the oppressed like no one else. Sure, Jesus throughout his ministry, he did justice and mercy all the time, perfectly in fact, throughout his whole life. Not only did he constantly physically help free people who were under the oppression of Pharisees at the time, these religious leaders who were just forcing all these rules that they were making up on people that you had to check all these boxes just to make God happy. God was const- Jesus was constantly rescuing people out from underneath that oppressive system. But more importantly, Jesus sets us free from our guilt and sin by canceling our debt on the cross. He alone is the one who ultimately accomplishes justice. And justice this is the thing that every human longs for, is that things would be set right, that things would be uh, fairly uh, accomplished or carried out, that justice would be served. And I don't, I don't know about you, but even for people, as they go through, maybe their situation goes through the court system, even after a fair verdict, there's just still something missing. There's still something that just leaves a void. And what that's telling in every human heart is that we need someone actually to bring a better level of justice, to actually come and and fulfill justice in this world, to right wrongs, to balance books. And this is what God promises to do. God alone in Jesus Christ promises to fulfill perfect justice. And he does it in two places. God, through Jesus Christ, fulfills perfect justice either on the cross of Jesus Christ in which all of his people's sins were placed on Jesus in a moment and God the Father served justice on his Son on our behalf. And it talks about him drinking a cup, drinking the cup of God's wrath and he drank it all the way down. It's dry. There is no drop left. Jesus took the wrath of God and swallowed and drank the wrath of God on the cross on our behalf, fulfilling perfect justice. All the sins that we had ever committed as God's people and the justice that was deserved, the wages of sin is death, Jesus took that for us. That's one place where the perfect justice of God is fulfilled. The other place is in hell. Those who have rejected Jesus Christ those who have continued in their sin, 
they continue in their sin and they carry the wage of that sin, which is death. And God will pour out His just and fair punishment on those sins in what the Bible calls the lake of fire, eternal conscious torment forever. God fulfills perfect justice in these two places. This is how God will actually satisfy the longing in every person's heart for true and fair justice. And what we quickly realize is that every one of us are deserving of hell. Every one of us is deserving of the second option. And God unfairly provides a new way to be saved. And He does it totally fair and just. He doesn't cut any corners. He doesn't cheat. He doesn't sweep our sins under the rug. He takes all of our sins and puts them on Jesus. And He pays for them completely and justly on the cross. So that, that's why in 1 John 1, 9, God can truly say that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because he really paid for it. He really took our tab. He really paid for all of our debt. And so it's right for him to forgive us. This is why he is the savior of all saviors. He's the best of saviors. He's the only one, the only one qualified and able to take all of our sin and really swallow all of our hell in a moment on the cross and provide a way of salvation in which we will forever be able to live with Him in eternal life. And this is the last thing that is said here in Psalm 146, is that He's able to do this because He reigns forever. He's, he's able to continue to be all these ways as a perfect Savior to us because His reign will never end. He will forever be King. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And Revelation 17 it declares that Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and His kingdom, and of His kingdom there will be no end. Luke 1. Jesus is able to be this Savior for you and for me forever if we trust in Him, if we give our life to Him, if we let go of whatever we're holding on to and let go of that and hold on to Jesus, if we trust in Him by faith, Jesus promises to be this kind of Savior, a Savior of all Saviors, a King of kings and of Lord of lords. If we surrender our lives fully to Him, we do not need to look any further. We do not need to do any more exploring of this world to see if there's other things better than the Lord. He's laid out his resume for us. Life is too short and sin is too destructive and Jesus is too good of a Savior for us to not trust in him. Trust in him and be freed from all your sins and all your shame and know him as a Savior who delights in you, who wants to save you, who left heaven for you so that he might delight your heart for eternity in him. Let's turn to Jesus, our creator and king, our savior and Lord. He asks you this day who you will choose, who will rescue you, 
who will be your Savior. Let's pray. For more resources and information about Hope Church Toronto West, please visit hopechurchtw.ca.